I said, I thought you guys had something to do with chilling the crabs, didn't you? Mm. This is yours, my brother. Well, I think we know that we share. Good afternoon. I am Tom Breidenthal, Dean of Religious Life and of the Chapel. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to this discussion of the movie, The Passion, and of the issues it raises. Before I introduce our distinguished panel, I would like to thank the two people who have made this event possible. Rabbi Bill Plevin, who is a student in the Graduate College, and Paul Rauschenbusch, Associate Dean of Religious Life, who has special responsibility for interfaith work. This event is sponsored by the Office of Religious Life in coordination with the Aquinas Institute and the Center for Jewish Life, and I would like to thank those institutions also for their help. And now I will introduce our panelists. And I will introduce them in the order in which they will speak. First of all, John Gager, the William Danforth Professor of Religion. Robert George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Dr. Cornell West, the Class of 1943 University Professor of Religion. We welcome David Elcott, United States Director of Interreligious Affairs for the American Jewish Committee. We also welcome William Donahue, President of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights. Our sixth speaker will be our own Jeffrey Stout, Professor of Religion. And last but not least, Stephen Tepper, Deputy Director of the Princeton University Center for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies. Before we begin, a brief word about our format. Each of the panelists will speak for up to eight minutes. Since we have a number of panelists and want to be sure to allow time for questions from you, I will let the panelists know if their time runs out. I apologize ahead of time. When all the panelists have had a chance to speak, I will invite questions from the audience. We will conclude at 6 o'clock or very shortly thereafter, and I hope all of you will be able to join us for more informal conversation at a reception in Murray Dodge Hall. Now I would like to invite John Gager to start us off. Thank you. I have to begin with a confession. Uh, not everyone on this panel has seen the film, and I am among them. This means that I will not be speaking about the film at all. Uh, the second confession is that, uh, I guess to me, falls the boring part, uh, the historical part. Uh, and the connection between the two confessions is that uh, I want to talk around the film. I want to talk as someone whose academic profession and intellectual passion is the study of the birth of Christianity in its ancient Greek 
Roman and Jewish environment. I approach uh, this film as someone who has spent the better part of his life uh, studying these materials. Uh, I will eventually see the film out of a sense of professional responsibility, uh, and I will bring with me uh, some of the issues that I want to put before us all today. And I'll do so in, in, in uh, just a series of, of propositions. The first is that the Gospels of the New Testament, uh, the Gospels in this particular case being the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are late texts. The earliest of them dates to roughly 40 years after the death of Jesus, and the the latest of them, Matthew and Luke, uh, somewhere between 60, 65, or 70 years after the death of Jesus. What this means is that the Gospels do not represent innocent, uncut videotapes of Jesus' life and death. You cannot just jump into the Gospels and say, look, this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus did. It takes a certain amount of effort, some of it very hard effort, to work your way or maybe I should just speak in the first person, to work my way back through the Gospels to earlier stages and levels where we can perhaps uh, encounter uh, the figure of Jesus. Part of the result of the fact that the Gospels are relatively late with respect to events in the life of Jesus is that they tell us as much, if not more, about their time than they do about the time about which they write. <clears throat> Another way to put it in simplest terms is that in reading the Gospel of Matthew, we learn more about Matthew, or whoever the author was, uh, and his time, his concerns, his beliefs, and his communities. We learn at least as much about them as we do about the time of Jesus. One of the particular elements uh, that clearly emerges uh, in the, from the fact that the Gospels are late, relatively speaking, to the time of Jesus, is that there is a clearly discernible pattern in them of shifting responsibility for the death of Jesus from Roman authorities to the Jewish authorities. <clears throat> the figure of Pilate, in the earliest of the Gospels, Mark is a fairly neutral figure. But as you move to the later Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and even move beyond the New Testament to, to uh, Pilate literature in the first and in the second centuries, this whitewashing of Pilate, the official representative of Rome, becomes ever uh, more pronounced uh, and unmistakable. The second proposition is that the Gospels are different one from another. In some cases, especially in the case of the Gospel of John, they are profoundly different from each other. Each tells its own story. And we need, particularly in the film, uh, whose claim is to represent the facts, uh, the life of Jesus as it really was, we need to pay careful attention 
to the specificity, to the particularity of each individual gospel, and be alert of, to and aware of ways in which uh, sometimes uh, consciously, sometimes unconsciously, they tend to get blended. The next proposition is that there are many images of Jesus in the Gospels and in later Christianity, too. Uh, Among these, perhaps the most prominent, is the image of Jesus as a healer. Uh, Throughout the Gospels uh, and the early Gospel traditions, Jesus is represented time and time again as a healer of various kinds of illnesses and diseases. And it's clear that in the early communities that formed around him, uh, that Jesus as healer was a powerful and a prominent image. Other uh, images of Jesus uh, represent him as a teacher. Uh, Others as an interpreter of biblical tradition. Others as an apocalyptic prophet, uh, uh, one who looks forward to, who predicts, and in some way even represents the uh, end of history in the immediate future. Still others, this is especially true in the Gospel of John, but one finds it also in the letters of Paul, still others represent him as a heavenly figure, as the divine, eternal son of God, obviously different from Jesus the healer, different from Jesus the teacher, different from Jesus the apocalyptic prophet. And as one among these images, there is an image of Jesus as the suffering servant who brings redemption by his death and resurrection. The next proposition is that the Gospels do not place great emphasis on the suffering of Jesus. And when they do so, it is almost always in language borrowed from the biblical prophet Isaiah, from the latter chapters of Isaiah, uh, referred to as the, uh, the material related to the suffering servant of God. There in Isaiah, even the sufferings of this servant, whose identity is not at all clear, is the, the focus is never on the suffering as such, but rather on the healing and the redemption for Israel that comes through this suffering. The next proposition. All of us come to the Gospels and to the figure of Jesus uh, from 20 centuries of Christian history. And it is well known that a good deal of that history has been characterized by anti-Judaism and its ugly twin, anti-Semitism. We tend to read that history back into the Gospels as if all of that later history were already there, fully present from the very beginning. Thus, when a filmmaker says, I'm not anti-Semitic, I can only say that this person is being either naive or disingenuous or perhaps even both. The next precept, the next uh, proposition is that one result of the filters created by these 20 centuries of Christian history is a tendency to read the Gospels since they come to us packaged in the Christian New Testament a tendency to read the Gospels and their stories and their characters as non-Jewish and to see all of the debates and discussions in them as taking place between Jews and Christians. John, almost time. 
We forget all too easily that Jesus was a Jew. His family was Jewish. His followers, including those who wrote the Gospels, were Jewish. And that all of the issues in the Gospels are Jewish issues. In other words, and this is the final sentence, (laughs) these are all intramural debates, not confrontations between Jews and Christians. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean Bridenthal. Please excuse me for speaking this afternoon in a very personal mode. I rarely speak this way, even in private settings, never in public, certainly not in front of 500 or 600 people. The nature and seriousness of the business at hand, however, demands what turns out for me to be rather a personal response. Like Professor Gager, I'm afraid I haven't seen the Passion of Christ or the Passion of the Christ. Most of my Christian friends who have seen the film, including some with whom I have worked for the past decade and a half in promoting understanding and cooperation between observant Jews and devout Christians, praise the film as a spiritually powerful representation of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. Yet many Jewish friends with whom I have discussed the movie are uneasy about it, and some deeply so. A few worry that its intention is to stir up anti-Jewish sentiment among Christians by reviving the ancient charge of deicide. A far larger number grant that this is not the film's intention, but fear that its consequences could include hostility and even violence against Jewish people, perhaps not here in the United States, but in Europe, the Islamic world, and in other places beyond our borders where it might be shown. No one who reflects on the shameful history of persecution of Jews by Christians, including Christians exercising ecclesiastical authority, will fail to take this concern very seriously. The Gospels have in the past sometimes been distorted to whip up prejudice and violence against Jews, and representations of Christ's passion, however praiseworthy in themselves, could be misused for that purpose again. That is why it is important not only for Jewish organizations, but also and especially for Christian leaders, Protestant and Catholic alike, to remind people that it is solemn Christian teaching that Christ's death is not to be blamed on the Jews and that anti-Semitism is always and everywhere a sin. This can be done and should be done without in any way suggesting that devout Protestant and Catholic believers are living powder kegs of anti-Semitism. They are not. Pope John Paul II, throughout his pontificate, has set an excellent example. His apologies and requests for forgiveness in the name of the church for sins committed by Christians against Jews have been ungrudging and manifestly heartfelt. He visited the great synagogue of Rome to declare that the Jewish people, far from being the enemies of Christians, are, quote, our brothers, and even, and I quote, our elder brothers in faith. This was received with great joy and rejoicing by the Jews of Rome and by many Jews around the world was certainly received with great joy by Jewish members of my own family. The Pope has unceasingly proclaimed the teaching of the Second Vatican Council in Nostra Aetate of the Second Vatican Council against blaming the Jewish people, then or now, for Christ's suffering and death, and he has seen to it that this teaching is permanently enshrined in utterly unambiguous terms in the universal catechism of the Catholic Church. The movie The Passion has revived discussion of the question, Who Killed Christ?, Speaking for myself, I begin with a different question. Who is Christ? It is the answer to this second question, really, that determines, for me, the answer to the first. Jesus himself put the question to his disciples. 
Who do men say that I am? They answered, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some the prophet. Jesus then said, and who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I have thought about this and prayed about this and argued with myself about this and reached the same conclusion that Peter reached. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He was sent by his father as our savior to share in our humanity, to suffer and die in a supreme act of self-sacrificial love in atonement for sins, and to be raised up to glory, making possible for us resurrection, salvation, and sharing in the divine life of the triune God. So having come to faith in Christ, I approached the question of responsibility for his death from the perspective of faith. And from that perspective, the answer to the question, who killed Christ, is clear. All too clear for my own comfort. I did it. I am the one responsible. It was not the Jews or even the Romans. It was not the religious leaders of the time. It was not Pontius Pilate, though he was a very bad guy. It was not the crowd or any of the historical figures in the dramatic account presented in the Gospels. It was for my sins that Christ died. It was for my selfishness, my greed, my lusts, my covetousness, my self-indulgence, my injustices, my failures of courage and of love. I'm seared by the words of St. Francis of Assisi. He is talking to me when he says, it is you who have crucified him and crucify him still when you delight in your vices and sins. Yes, it is true. I am the one. I am responsible and I am sorry. Someone might say, well, even from a Christian vantage point, it's not just you. All are sinners and Christ died for all, so the responsibility is shared by all. Well, yes, as a theological matter, that's true. I certainly don't deny it, but this truth is easily misunderstood. The guilt is not collective, even when we take the collectivity to be the whole of mankind. Sins are committed by individuals, though individuals can conspire to create sinful institutions and social structures. So my guilt is not reduced or diluted by what I accept as a theological fact, as the Catholic Catechism puts it, precisely in the context of denying that the blame is on the Jews. Quote, all sinners are the authors of Christ's passion. But in gazing upon the suffering of Christ, it is not other people's sins with which I am confronted. It is my sins. Many good people do not answer the question, who is Christ as I do? For them, the question, who killed Christ, if it is to be asked at all, must be addressed as a matter of historiography. Unfortunately, the quantity and quality of the details provided by the Gospels and other sources, while sufficient to answer the personal and existential question that presents itself in the light of faith, leaves much uncertain and obscure about the events of Holy Thursday night and Good Friday. That doesn't mean that historians shouldn't do their best in trying to sort the matter out, but their answers will necessarily be tentative. For my part, I have arrived where I have arrived on the question, who is Christ? So the question, who killed Christ, confronts me in a very personal and existential way. Of course, if the catechism is right and all sinners are the authors and ministers of the passion, then anyone who arrives where I have arrived, others as well as myself, will confront the question as I do, and each will hear St. Francis talking to him very personally when he says, it is you who have crucified him. In the liturgical commemoration of Christ's Passion in Holy Week, the Catholic Church has, a, has found a way of confronting the faithful vividly with the personal and existential truth of the matter, as the Church sees it. There is a responsive reading of the Gospel account of the events of Holy Thursday and Good Friday. 
A lector serves as narrator. The priest reads the words of Jesus. A deacon or the lector reads the words of Herod, Pontius Pilate, and others in the story. And the congregation reads the words of the crowd. I will tell you candidly that I dread this service. I have to drag myself to it. The reason I dread it is because I am required to confront that very personal and existential question. Nothing could be more painful, and it is painful because this is not a play. I am not there as an actor playing a role or part. The liturgical context from the point of view of faith makes it real, not pretend, not make-believe. It brings out the truth of the matter. What I dread are two words that I am required to speak, and I dread them because they leave me in no doubt as to the answer to the personal and existential question, who killed Christ. They come after Pilate has agreed to release the criminal Barabbas at the crowd's demand. Pilate then asks, what would you have me do with Jesus of Nazareth? And we say, I say, crucify him. Yes, I say it. I am the one calling for his death, not as an actor in a play, but as my very self, a real-life sinner rendered transparent to myself in the existential reality of the liturgy. In that moment, I, as a worshiping Christian, am made to speak the truth about myself, my guilt, my need for repentance and forgiveness. I validate the charge that St. Francis confronts me with. It is you who have crucified him. Yes, it is I. First, I'd like to thank uh, my dear brother Rabbi Bill Plevin and my dear brother Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch for facilitating our coming together. Uh, there's no doubt that much is at stake in this discussion. We've been informed by Brother Gager, we've been moved by dear brother Robert George. I speak as a Christian. I speak as a Christian who is deeply suspicious of empires, of state power and imperial might, be it the Roman Empire and, of course, the cross is the symbol of the underside of the Roman Empire, or be it the American Empire, or the British Empire, or the Ottoman Empire. So in stark contrast to my brother, my fundamental question is not who killed Jesus or who is Christ. It is what does the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith demand of me now in relation to the effects and consequences of Christian anti-Judaism and modern anti-Semitism, two of the most vicious forms of bigotry and pernicious forms of hatred in the shaping of who we are in this postmodern moment. And I begin with the Jewishness of Jesus precisely because, as Professor Gager said, the debate over how we understand the Passion narrative was an intra-Jewish debate 
the first Christians were themselves Jews and they were wrestling with the legacy of a Judaism that would produce rabbinical Judaism on the one hand and Christianity on the other. And when you look at those 71 references to the Jews in the Gospel of John or the 17 references to the Jews in the other three synoptic Gospels, there are Jews referring to Jews. And at that point, it was a theological debate. Why? Because they were a persecuted minority in a Roman Empire with gangsters like Pilate and others who were executing folk at will and subjugating and exploiting. But in 312, the incorporation of a particular result of that struggle among Jews, Christianity was made the official religion. Then Constantinian Christianity with the backing of imperial might and state power. So there was no longer just a theological debate among persecuted folk. It became a lethal weapon that initiated a long, dark, bleak history of murder, mayhem. In the medieval period, every Eastern cathedrals across Europe, you begin by bringing a Jew into the cathedral to symbolically strike them. Why? Because Roman imperial power overlooked. They are now innocent. It's Jewish responsibility. And yet how ironic that the Jews in John had to do with Jews referring to Jews. But now there's Christians who are backed by imperial power that move on through this very dark history. To the dark history that most American Christians don't want to come to terms with because so many of them are Constantinian Christians now. Deferring to the American Empire, unable to really identify with what it means to be a persecuted group like Jewish brothers and sisters after 312, from 312 A.D. through the European Holocaust up into this moment, given the escalating anti-Semitism, which is at work this very moment. And so when I look at this debate, and I have, I must say, I've read much about the film, and I guess I have a professional obligation to see it, but I have no desire to really see it. I must say the reason why is because... Our culture is so preoccupied with voyeuristic, pornographic representations of suffering already. Now here comes my Jesus being invoked in this regard. Little about his life, little about his deeds, little about his praxis, little about his critique of injustice, little about his recognition of the prophetic strand within Judaism that says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, or do justly love mercy, walk humbly with thy God, or love thy neighbor that comes straight out of Leviticus. Now that's my Jesus as a black Christian who comes from a persecuted group within the American empire who is in solidarity with all persecuted peoples, including those particular persons who are products of this vicious characterization of Jews as deicidists, God killers, Christ killers, and so forth. But I also use this moment, and do I have about 30 seconds left? You have uh, four minutes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but I also use this moment to challenge my Jewish brothers and sisters because there's many Constantinian Jews who have deferred to the American Empire too. Many have actually made alliances with the same Christian evangelicals who they now discover 
maybe have deep anti-Semitic proclivity they know not of. And we laugh, but this is serious business. It's a serious business. James Baldwin used to say that too many American Jews believe that their Holocaust ended in Europe and they've come to the promised land of America. Well, for black people, the Holocaust began in America. And so this temple feeling as if you're so comfortable in a promised land. Weimar, Germany, Alexandria, Egypt. I would think that prophetic Jewish brothers and sisters ought to be just as suspicious of any empire as they were of the Roman Empire. And so when I hear my fellow Christians that I take very seriously, I've talked to some Christians who said, it's all about love. I was so deeply moved. The physical suffering of Jesus resonated so deeply in my soul. And I say, yes, I can understand that. But what kind of fruits is it going to bear in terms of your identification with people who are suffering now, including your Jewish brothers and sisters who are suffering, who remember Titian's 1903 after Easter, the program and so forth? Does it remain so theological and individualistic that the physical suffering of Jesus touches one's individual piety, but the issues of the role of imperial power and state might that has been at the back of this evil Christian anti-Judaism and modern anti-Semitism still is rendered less important, marginal, as it were. That's the kind of debate that I think um, I would like to at least not so much have, but in, uh, th that's my perspective in terms of intervening in this debate. But of course, I'm willing to learn like all good Christians ought to. So I'll uh, speak as your prophetic Jewish brother who actually saw the movie as well. <laughs> the, um, you and I, we tell our stories. Those stories give meaning to our lives. These narratives which we choose take facts, the evidence of our life, and put them together in ways that are enormously significant to us. Nations, communities, religious communities, peoples, they do the same and create sacred narratives that make sense of the collective, this people, this nation, this religion. We live our narratives. We don't simply believe them, but we actually live them out. And those narratives are powerful expressions of what matters, where we see ourselves going, what we choose to do. Historically, those narratives have been used by peoples and nations to conquer, to destroy, to inflict enormous damage, to humiliate, and to denigrate. And we all know that all the wars in the name of God are wars in my sacred narrative that I will inflict on others. Our narrative that we share here, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. In this country, we now understand that that really only meant white-landed Christian men, and then meant white-landed men, and then went, meant white men, and then meant men, and finally, in the not-so-distant past, meant all citizens in this country. 
In fact, we fought a civil war over exactly that sacred memory, that sacred narrative. Both sides claiming it in the name of God. And think, for example, of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Loosed his, his, his lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth goes marching on. Right? The absolutes of truth. So it seems to me the questions we would want to ask about a movie that proposes that it is the gospel, what criteria would we want to evaluate that? So we ask questions. We come from a Jewish and a Christian tradition, and actually a Muslim tradition as well, that each and every human being is created in God's image, Selim Elohim, an image of God. So does my narrative other others in ways that are hurtful or harmful? Is my narrative dependent on humiliating others with stereotypes, with caricatures that are negative and hurtful? If I am in relationship, as I would hope we would be, in a covenantal relationship, breed, a covenantal relationship between people of faith, does my narrative and the way I tell it polarize and divide the world? into forces of good and forces of evil, of satanic evil or absolute righteousness with no place in between. Certainly the greatest pain for me was sitting with 4,500 Christian ministers. And when Mel Gibson said, was asked the question, who opposes Jesus? He says the forces of Satan or dupes of fate, Satan. I wondered, who am I? in that scene, or probably who are many of my colleagues and many of you in that scene. Third, is there any humility at all, or do I present my narrative as such an absolute irrefutable truth that I'm willing to go to any ends to ensure the fulfillment, the total victory of my, of my narrative? Or do I recognize that God is an absolute truth, but we as humans only have portions of it, pieces of it, but we can't own it all because to own all the truth, to present my, my statement, my religion, my movie as an absolute truth actually is a form of idolatry. And we would want to add, and in that, in that I would, I would add perhaps one last criterion. Do we find sacredness in our narrative? Is it elevating? Does it provide kedusha, holiness to the world? Or does my portrayal so denigrate human beings, make them so ugly and so evil, that I have little to say other than they should be destroyed? This movie is not about anti-Semitism. It is, though, about creating absolutes, either-ors, polarizing the world, denigrating humanity. If there is no one with whom I can identify in that movie except for Jesus, Mary, Mary Magdalene, James, and every other person there is evil incarnate, I can't believe that is the way the world should be or that any narrative should be told. I want to end with a at least in this phase of our conversation, I want to end with a narrative that I learned uh, only a few days ago by a Latino leader with whom I was in dialogue, a Latino Catholic leader, David Valladolid. I have to give his name because in our tradition, one of the ways you get to heaven is by naming your 
the teacher who taught you something. And since I probably have few other ways to get to heaven, I'll be pleased to at least cite his name. He tells a Cherokee narrative that he brought and asked if he could end our session together with these words. An elder of the Cherokee nation was teaching his grandchildren about life. He said to them, a fight is going on inside of me. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One wolf represents fear and anger, regret, greed, arrogance, triumphalism, resentment, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other wolf stands for joy, peace, love, sharing, serenity, humility, benevolence, empathy, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of every other person. The children thought about his story for a minute, and then one child asked the grandfather, which wolf will win? And the elder replied quietly, the one you feed. What was painful for me, and the question we want to ask is, what wolf does an artist, does a human being, does a leader, does someone with the power to influence and change and transform the world, what wolf do we choose to feed? Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, the, uh, the presentations so far have been excellent and very scholarly. I feel like I'm back in the classroom when I was a professor for a number of years. I'm going to take you on a different journey because I've been dealing with this now for about a year. And I've gotten to know Mel. He's a good man. And I will defend him more than anybody. It started with me back in June. I was debating Rabbi Hare. Simon Wiesenthal Center. He hadn't seen the movie at that point, neither had I. I've seen it three times, twice with Mel and once uh, the other day with some rabbis. And we were debating about the movie, even though the producers knew we hadn't seen the movie. It's about the controversy surrounding it. Mel had seen the movie. He wanted to meet with me, and so he did. And so he came into my office on July the 6th uh, in New York City and had a VHS and showed me the movie along with a few other friends. Then he asked me to come back on July 22nd to see it again at Sony Studios. And, and I did. And I've been leading the fight with him in the Catholic community. He has a lot of cheerleaders in the Catholic community, but most of, most of them are cowards. They don't want to deal with the issue for fear of charge of being anti-Semitic. I happen to think that the Catholic-Jewish dialogue in this country has been based on phoniness for a long time, and I blame Catholics more than I do Jews. Because if you're going to have an honest dialogue with people, you'd better be honest. And if there are disagreements, put your cards on the table. Don't pretend everything is okay when, in fact, it's not. And certainly this movie has shown. I have never in my life seen a more vicious, unethical assault on a filmmaker in his movie than on Mel Gibson in this movie. Every trick in the book has been pulled to pressure him to change this, to change that, to put into postscripts, from running over to the, to the Vatican, Abraham Foxman, to get the Pope to try and change his views, getting bishops to get me in line. I hope you understand the Catholic League is a 501c3 organization. We don't get a dime from the Catholic Church, and so I am free to write back a very terse and stingy, uh, a strong letter to a bishop if he wants to try and get me into line. We've had Catholic theologians working with a stolen script. It was, was uh, sent to uh, uh, a rabbi, got a hold of it out of Icon Production, sent it over to Gene Fisher at the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops, Abraham Foxman. They sent it to some Catholic and Jewish theologians. Of course, they didn't like the movie. Let me tell you something, people. Mel Gibson doesn't need to vet his movie by any scholars. 
He's not an altar boy. This is not a docudrama. It's his movie. It's his interpretation. Did he take liberties with it? Of course. When I watched it with him for the first time, he said, is it in the New Testament that Mary mops up the blood of Jesus after discouraging? He says, I don't know. Could have happened. I'm putting it in there. Somebody's complaining about some scene at the bridge. Is it there? No, it probably isn't. He made it up. Okay, make your own movie. You know why this movie has been a... <laughs> this movie has been a success because for the last 25 years, Hollywood has been bashing Christianity in general and Catholicism is in, in particular. And now we're supposed to be on the defensive. We've been called bigots. We've been called thugs. I wrote an open letter to the Jewish community because I'm not afraid... See, I'm not like one of these, I, I worked in Spanish Harlem, in fact, I'm not afraid to deal with black people, Puerto Rican people, unlike other white people, okay, and I can deal with Jews straight up. So I wrote this letter and I said, as far as the violence is concerned, God knows Jews have been kicked around for 2,000 years. We know that. But in this country, Leonard Dinnerstein wrote the book, Anti-Semitism in America. Thank God. And he called it a Christian country, by the way. About 85% of the people in this country are Christian. He said, never have there been pogroms in this country. I wrote to James Shapiro, who wrote the book on the Passion Plays over at Columbia University. And I said to him, when was the last time a Jew was beaten up in this country following the depiction of a Passion Play? When in Europe? His answer, never in the United States. Thank God. Again, I say to that, the last time in Europe, Middle Ages. You have to go back to 1539 to find an example where church authorities took certain precautions for Jews. Now, what bothers me is this. I don't want, to, want Jews to think that we Catholics, and I, and I think I'm speaking for Protestants here as well, that we are just latent anti-Semitic because you just scratch us a little bit and boy, out comes uh, the, the, the murder. If there's a problem in France, you know, maybe you want to send the missionaries over to France, make them Catholic again, they'll be less anti-Semitic. Because that's their problem. Their problem is secularism over there, okay? Now, people have to be very careful when they start pointing fingers. One minute. <laughs> Is the film authentic? I asked Christopher Hitchens the other day. I said, I don't, I don't understand you, Christopher. You said that the, you're concerned about its authenticity. Did you complain about the last temptation of Christ? I mean, that, that was kind of wildly inaccurate. I want you to know something right now. Today, I wrote a letter to Raymond uh, Kelly. He's the head of the police commission in New York. They sent 20 detectives, 20 detectives on their on our arm in New York City in to watch the movie because it might be a hate crime. I, I talked to the lady over at the ACLU, of which I've written a few books about, and my friends over at the ACLU. They come back and they say to me, well, why did you ask us to take a look at this news release and the letter to Raymond Kelly? I said, you guys ever hear of chilling effects? Why do we have cops, law enforcement agents going into a movie theater? What do you think the Christians are going to be doing? I mean, this is, this is, this is mind-boggling. We have such a double standard. Lawrence O'Donnell the other night on television tells me Mel is finished in Hollywood because it's a, quote, very liberal community. Does he know what he just said? I agree with them, but except Mel's not going to be finished because he's too big. The fact of the matter is he's 48 and he's got lots of money. If he were 28 and his name were Mel Smith, would this movie have been made? I don't know. There's a fascistic strain in the left, and I'm fed up with it. We're too much alike. We're too much alike. I know that. I know that. We got to get some thrown out of here. No, but yeah, you, you, you cleared. I like that. <laughs> we got it. Okay. Right. How does one follow that? <laughs> I have seen the movie. 
once. When I, I mean, I, I uh, teach and occasionally write on religion and film. And when I do so, when I speak publicly on these matters, it's usually after having seen the film in question something like a dozen or 20 times. So part of the message I want to bring to the broader community is that I think it makes sense to think very long and hard about a film like this before forming uh, judgments about it. And I think there are many different sorts of question that need to be asked about it. Uh, what, what I'm initially trying to grope my way toward is an evaluation of the movie, an overall evaluation of the movie, its quality, its aesthetic quality, its ethical and spiritual quality. And my initial tendency is to be relatively negative toward the movie, but in expressing uh, my views on this matter, I do not in any way intend to impugn either the rationality or the spirituality of those who find it uh, extremely moving and impressive. My own evaluation of the movie has a lot to do with what other movies I spent my time watching. And since I focus as a scholar on religion and film, I spend a lot of time trying to find and study with great care the greatest passion films, that is, the greatest films that have been made either about the passion of Christ or about uh, the passion of Christ figures. So there is a great classic cinematic tradition on this topic. It's not the tradition that Mel Gibson had in mind, I believe. I think, in fact, that Mel Gibson probably isn't terribly familiar with this tradition. I think there are some indications in the film cinematically that he's aware of some elements of it. Um, but I hope that he and you will attend to some of these other examples before you make judgments about whether this is a great movie or not. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. That's part of what the humanities has to add to this discussion. Okay. Now, two sorts of ethical, spiritual dangers tend to arise in passion films that set out to represent the uh, suffering uh, and or death of Christ or some Christ figure. And we've already touched on both of these dangers uh, on this panel. One is the tendency of the audience to, after witnessing the suffering inflicted on the innocent victim, to desire revenge against those who are portrayed as responsible for the evil suffered. Okay? That's the theme that connects up with anti-Semitism, and that is one of the dangers, ethical, spiritual dangers, that the great directors dealing with this theme mm. think about very hard. Okay? So one question you can ask about this film is, 
How does Gibson's attempt to deal with that measure up to the attempt made by the great directors? That's one question. The second tendency is the tendency of the audience to become enthralled by participating in a kind of sadomasochistic voyeurism. This picks up on a comment that Cornell made a few minutes ago. Okay. Most of the discussion of the film and its spiritual dangers has not talked much about that. But this is harder to talk about, but it's also something that the great directors have thought very seriously about, and I'm going to say a little more about this. So, again, uh, let me just start with the first question and see how, how much time do I have? Four minutes. What does Gibson do to protect against the demonization of Romans and Jews? Um, it's interesting, and I, I, I'm, I'm only going to touch very briefly on this topic, but I think there's a lot of detail to go into, and I'd need to see the movie again. I think he has been somewhat unjustly treated on this point. There have been some false charges made against him. But I can say that it's pretty clear that he works harder at um, making you ambivalent as opposed to merely negative in the treatment of the Romans than he does uh, in working on guarding against uh, similar, uh, guarding against entirely negative uh, readings of the Jews. He does emphasize the Jewishness of Simon of Cyrene, who is compelled, as Matthew puts it, to carry the cross for Jesus. Uh, while Gibson explains the need for uh, compulsion by depicting Simon as wanting to remain uninvolved, he does have Simon eventually show some sympathy for Jesus. So we have one Jewish character who's explicitly presented as Jewish who shows a little sympathy for Jesus beyond the circle of Mary and the immediate disciples. So... Uh, he could have gone a good deal further than this, and you can see why some people are upset that he didn't. Okay? Now, on the other issue, um, I would strongly encourage people to look at the following three, uh, well, uh, the following two films. Let's just take two. Uh, the greatest of the passion films, in my opinion, is The Passion of Joan of Arc made in the 20s as a silent film by Carl Theodore Dreyer, who is one of the great filmmakers of all time. In the middle of this film, focused on the Christ-like suffering, uh, all in parallel uh, to, the, to the gospel passion narratives, what does Dreyer have the guard do? Some of you who have taken one of my courses know the answer to this question. The guard who was engaged in um, mocking Jesus raises his hand like this and looks through his hand as in a circle. Okay. What Dreyer is doing is he is saying, the director of this film, me, okay. I cannot exonerate myself. Even the watching of this scene involves me as director 
in complicity in the act. The, he, what he is doing is using cinematic language to draw attention to an ethical spiritual danger of the very thing he is engaged in. And when then Joan is taken into the torture chamber, the instruments of torture are figured as reminiscent of a film projector and a movie reel. Okay. Alfred Hitchcock, who is one of the great Catholic directors, returns repeatedly to this same theme in many of his films, in Psycho, in Rear Window, and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, Breaking the Waves, a very controversial recent passion film, by Lars von Trier, like Dreyer, a Dane, therefore very conscious of Dreyer's work, also includes a scene in which there's, the director is calling attention to the spiritual dangers of sadomasochistic voyeurism involved in the representation of a passion. Do I see anything like this on a first viewing? in terms of self-consciousness of the dangers here and an attempt to deal with it in cinematic language in Gibson's film? No, I don't. And I wish I did. But what I'm saying to you initially is, do I see this as an especially self-conscious, important work of art judged in relation to the great peaks in the history of passion films? On first viewing, no, I don't. I see it as much more strongly related to a different cinematic tradition. The one, the film that it's closest to um, is actually Braveheart, Gibson's uh, previous film, which ends with a scene which of much shorter duration, which calls attention to its own analogies to the passion and ends with Mel Gibson being on the cross and then beheaded. Okay. Um, okay, my time's up. Let me just say very briefly, the films that, that, that aside from Mel Gibson's own films that need to be seen as a cinematic context for this include Spartacus, okay, One-Eyed Jacks, the Marlon Brando film of 1961, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which in 1973 portrayed Jesus, Jesus' flogging in slow motion. The use of slow motion is very important in this film in terms of exaggerating the effect of the, of the violence. Uh, Rocky by Sylvester Stallone. The theme that this is somebody, Jesus now, is somebody who perseveres and gets up off the, you know, that this Rocky theme is very strong in this film. Uh, Scorsese's Last Temptation is alluded to. We can talk more about that if you want. But the most important predecessor film for this is Saving Private Ryan. Okay? I'll stop there. Okay, this is the uh, moment in the panel when you go from uh, wow to oh. Um, 
I want to, uh, I want to place the conflict, uh, today I want to do three things. I want to place the conflict in context and talk briefly about the role of religion and the arts more generally. Second, I want to discuss the extent to which this controversy validates the notion that we may be in the midst of a culture war. And third, I want to suggest that we get beyond the national headlines and investigate how the controversy unfolds at the local level in communities across America. But before I begin, um, I feel like I have to share with you a piece of spam that I got today before I came over uh, to the talk. Uh, this is from uh, Sweet Deals, which I get. I can't figure out a way to get it out of my inbox. And I get it about every day, and normally they're trying to sell me uh, a cable connection or a toaster. Um, but today, they're trying to sell me uh, the Mel Gibson movie. And it says, uh, I normally disregard it, but I, you know, I was looking for source material for today, so I read it. <laughs> and, I, and it starts off, Mel Gibson, I quote, Mel Gibson is taking a harsh criticism for his new movie that's so graphic, so controversial, not even Hollywood would touch it. But that didn't stop Mel, who's said to have spent over $25 million of his own money to produce what they are calling the greatest movie of all time. Then they ask for me uh, to, uh, to give my opinion about the film, and they direct me to a brief survey, which you can all take, www.passionmoviesurvey.com. And the best thing about taking the survey is that I have a chance to win a yellow 2003 H2 Hummer. <laughs> um, I, don't know what, I don't know exactly what to oh make of God. this. Um, <laughs> Go for it, Steve. The, uh, <laughs> what's the, what's the, the questions. The questions. The first question is, is, is says, have I seen Mel Gibson's new film, The Passion of Christ? Yes or no? The second question, have you heard controversial statements made regarding the film? Yes or no? The third question, do you realize that Jesus died on the cross for you? <laughs> yes, yes or no? And then it continues, and the last question is basically in the form of a prayer, which it asked me to read, and then says, did you read the above prayer, yes or no? <laughs> um, so this, this is an interesting vortex of issues here, the sort of crass juxtaposition of deep faith with commercialism, the commercialism of raffling off a yellow, H, uh, a yellow Hummer, um, and, of course, this is an uneasy combination in the film project itself, which will probably earn more money for any single individual than any movie has before. Um, and it turns out that the survey is sponsored by the, the River at Tampa Bay Church, which has used the hype of the movie, the power of the Internet, and the lure of the Hummer to sell a religious message. So I'm not sure what to make of it, but I find it very odd, and I wanted to put it out there. So the context, what's the big picture? Well, most films that have dealt with religious themes have generated controversy. 1927, The King of Kings enraged Jewish groups who were worried about the depiction uh, in that film and that they would be blamed for the crucifixion. In 1951, Roberto Rossellini's The Miracle inflamed Catholics with its story of Joseph seducing a young shepherdess. Jesus Christ Superstar in 73 offended both Christians and Jews. <laughs> Roman Catholics protested the life of Brian, which was Monty Python's film. And most recently, The Last Temptation of Christ and the Priest caused storms of protest and controversy. Uh, and The Last Temptation of Christ 
which was a particular artist's interpretations of the vision that Jesus might have had while on the cross, I think is a perfect mirror to the controversy over the passion, except the offended groups are reversed. Um, and of course, beyond religion, uh, other groups have protested films. Muslims were upset by the way they were depicted in the siege. Haitians protested uh, how Stella got her groove back. Um, so in short, I guess I'm suggesting that there's been a real pluralism in offensiveness of Hollywood. <laughs> Everyone uh, can find something to be offended by. Um, now, it's important to realize that although religion has been a flashpoint for controversies, it doesn't necessarily represent the lion's share of what citizens fight over when they're fighting over art and culture. Uh, I've been looking over the last six years at 75 cities and collecting all the cases of conflict I can find over books, film, music, and paintings, and of the 950 cases I've found, only 7% involve uh, religious actors or religious themes. So religious concerns are not absent, but they're certainly not the engine driving most public disputes over culture, and I think it's important to put that in context. So the, the fight over the passion is nothing new. Uh, neither Jews nor Christians are necessarily being singled out by Hollywood, at least if you take the, the broad uh, view over the last uh, century. Uh, and this is not uh, necessarily a good representation of the kinds of conflicts that tend to occur at the local level across America. How's my time? Okay, so the second question, is this controversy an indication of the culture war, that the culture wars are, are, are alive and well? Scholars such as James Davidson Hunter, Tom Gitlin, have contended that America is in the midst of a deep and momentous struggle between citizens who hold traditional and orthodox views and those that hold liberal, secular, and humanistic views. And the controversy over the passion may simply reflect this growing tension in America between religious conservatives and liberals. I don't think that's the case. First, scholars at the Center for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies, where I have been working, have looked at public opinion data over hot-button issues like abortion, prayer in school, arts funding, gay rights, over 30 years, and they found actually that there's been a convergence of opinion in the middle. There's no evidence that groups have become more polarized into two opposing camps. On the other hand, there is evidence that people on the far right and on the far left have become much more effective at linking with national social movements, the American Family Association, People for the American Way, the Moral Majority, to mobilize constituents and get their ideas into the mainstream press. So the visibility of these issues is rising at the very same time that the issues are becoming less divisive for most Americans. I think that's interesting. The controversy that you've been reading about, in my opinion, is primarily about the activity of national elites, journalists, film critics, and leaders of social movement organizations who use the film to mobilize their constituents and whose mission it is to publicly defend or challenge cultural presentations that they themselves feel are offensive or that offend their members or their readers. So for me, speculating about Gibson's motives or trying to defend or criticize the content is less productive. Uh, as a sociologist, uh, I'd much rather look at how different communities react to the presentations differently. The life of Brian, which I talked about, was controversial in New York, South Carolina, Maine, Louisiana, but was largely ignored in many other places. The last temptation of Christ resulted in protests in San Antonio, Waco, Texas, Hazeltown, Pennsylvania, Seattle, Minneapolis, and New York. 
In Boston and Philadelphia, there was little controversy. So I think the most interesting question to ask is why are some communities more contentious than others when it comes to fighting over art and culture? In the case of the Passion, we should look and see which communities organize protests, letter-writing campaigns, petitions, and which communities don't. And what does it tell us about those that do? I'm Jewish. I went to the film. I saw it here in, in, in Princeton. When I left the film, I did not feel like I had to publicly bear witness to my neighbors and fellow citizens about it. I didn't feel compelled to speak out. How would I have felt if I had left a theater in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, or in Albuquerque, or in New Mexico, or in Brooklyn, or in Anchorage? And I think there are, there are different factors that might explain why I or other Jews or Christians might feel differently depending on where they live and how they feel about the trust they have with their fellow community members, interfaith relations in that community, um, the extent to which they feel embattled as a minority group, and this is a last stand to stand up and speak for themselves. Um, so my point here is that there are many social conditions that may push a conflict or a lack of conflict in one direction or another. And as we witness these conflicts peppering our landscape in America, we should ask, why this place? Why is this community right for conflict? And that will help us get beyond the headlines and I think learn something about ourselves and the underlying social tensions that animate our political life. Thanks. We have some time now for questions. And I'm going to ask that if you are able, please stand so that you can be better heard. I'm also going to ask, in the interest of time, only one question and no statements. And if you could direct your question to a particular member of the panel, that would be helpful. I saw a hand over here. Would one of you uh, like to take that question? As far as the, the hand there, that, that reason why Mel Gibson chose his hand there was to demonstrate what Robbie George has said. That is to say that Christ died for all of us, and every time we sin, we sin against Christ. So let, let, it, let it begin with me. I would want to add one other thing to that, though, sir. When Catholics go to church on Saturday night and Sunday morning, we say the creed. We don't say that Christ was crucified by the Jews. We don't say that Christ was crucified by the Romans. What we say, going back to 325, is that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. It's very important. It's individualized. With regard to Maya Morgenstern, her father escaped the Holocaust. Um, she, this is, this, I thought she stole the show as far as I'm concerned. My heart went out to her. She was magnificent. Certainly, she labored uh, Mel to make some changes. And uh, how could you resist her? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman um, over there. Okay, no statement, no statements. Isn't that 
The concerns about the movie preceded the movie coming out, and the success of the movie isn't what's driving reactions one way or the other. It pulls in a house like this about the movie. Um, look, believing Christians who can focus on the experience of the movie, simply on the suffering and internalize that, and can say that it's so important to me that I will ignore everything else, it will be a deeply spiritual moving experience. There will be nothing other than that occurring. No anger, no hostility. And when they walk out and say, I feel love in my heart and obligation to humanity, I have every reason to believe that 100%. I don't think there's any question in that. The dilemma is that there are other elements in the movie that are incredibly negative or that are incredibly um, undermining of many of the values that we most of us hold in terms of mutual religious respect and pluralism and willingness to reach out to other communities and listen and be respectful of each other. There, it is possible, it is probably very real, and I think the last point was made not only in terms of of communities seeing it, but actually individuals. It was very clear to me that my experience was radically different than the experience of the people around me. I can't impugn motive of anybody who's seeing, and I'm not going to impugn motive even of Mel Gibson. We do have a right, critics have a right, people who go out have a right to do exactly what we do when we see an artist. We can comment on it, not telling him he should do it any differently. He makes his choices. I make mine. But the concerns that are voiced about the movie are exactly because he's the most popular actor. He produces a major mega movie out there. It's going to be met not with antagonism and some larger social commentary or playing out right-left divisions. It's going to be met by people who are really concerned about things they saw and the ways they were hurt and the ways they were affected. And you know, anti-Semitism, in some ways we gotta, we gotta, we recognize it's there and it's in all different places in society. Nobody's gonna be anti-Semitic because of this movie. Anti-Semites have been very capable of being anti-Semitic without any evidence of anything. This is not, that's just not what it's about. Yes. And, and if you would please stand, and could you direct your question to a particular panelist, please? Okay. Thank you. Um, I guess my question would be directed more to uh, those of you who have seen the film, but not Mr. Beer. But uh, in your opinion, has the controversy itself, the suggestion of the movie and the images, been more likely to inspire and to make people who are going to go see the film see that in the film than they would have originally without coming to the movie? Uh, the, the question, is it, did everyone hear the question? The question, if I understood it, if I heard it correctly, was um, whether the controversy surrounding the film is likely to create a situation where viewers are going to be likelier to read anti-Semitism into the film than they might otherwise have done without the controversy. I think that's probably true. Um, I think it's probably true. But 
I don't think that's a reason not to have the controversy. The controversy uh, is pretty much built into the material. Now, I think it's very important to be careful when talking about this. Careful not to impugn the religious motives of the people of either the director or the people for whom it is a devotional object. Um, it's no accident that the film was released on Ash Wednesday. It is a Lenten film. It is structured around the 12 stations of the cross. It is intended to induce a certain kind of reflection on this that is part of uh, a certain strand of traditional Christian piety. Um, it remains the case that the two main sorts of issues are inevitably going to be raised by the material. So what we need to do then is have a discussion of those issues and try to use the opportunity of all this publicity as, an op as a chance to to educate the public and make steer this controversy in the direction of genuine discourse and uh, education. Yes. I appreciate the question. Um, let me say this, though, that any passion narrative that brings together Jewish responsibility and Roman innocence in relation to the death of Christ is in effect anti-Semitic. Not an in intention. And I would fight for the right of Brother Mel Gibson to make any kind of film he, he wants, just like I fight for the right for Brother Donovan to, in my way, be wrong, but that's all right. <laughs> that, that's, that's what we fight. So, so at the libertarian level, that's not, that, that's not important. There's a lot of racist films, sexist films, homophobic films. We go on and on and on. They have a right to do that. But they have responsibility and accountability. When you're talking about the Gospels, you are talking about history remembered and prophecy historicized. You look in the eighth chapter of Amos, darkness at noon for three hours. That is a theological debate among Jews to connect Jesus to a particular lineage because they're trying to understand what it means to be a Jewish Christian in light of a rich tradition. 
And the rabbinical Judaism that's coming out at the same moment has different interpretations in relation to the same tradition. So when I hear Mel Gibson say, this is non-fictional, and I say, well, if you're invoking the Gospels themselves that are both history-remembered and prophecy-historicized, then you've already got fiction shot through the original text themselves in terms of a theological debate going on. And the problem is, is that our fundamentalist brothers and sisters of Christian faith our literalists of Christian faith, when I say literalists, does he put, is the actor of Jesus Jewish himself? No. no. Then how literalist is he? What, what kind of literalism are you talking about? <laughs> you know, what, what does he mean by literal at that point? But I mean, that's, that's just a footnote. But the, but the point is, is that when he talks about fiction and nonfiction, you're, you're beginning to raise issues that are very dangerous in a culture that doesn't want to interrogate literalism and fundamentalism in relation to fiction versus nonfiction. And that's why, as I said before, it becomes dangerous. So this is so to my claim is only in effect. And if he meets the criteria and is anti Semitic in effect, it's dangerous and so forth. If not, then I'm wrong and not. Can I say one thing about this? Sure, yes, sir. Alex Haley came up with the word faction. He said it was fiction and fact when he did with uh Kunta Kunte in Roots. Okay? Uh, Oliver Stone has made his whole career out of juxtaposing fact and fiction, tells you that it's really fiction, and then works up a study guide to go into the public school classrooms. So, uh, quite frankly, I don't like this genre, but I think in defense of Mel, it is a movie. Certain lines, of course, are taken right out of the hospital, and that raises another question. To what extent is the animus against this movie an animus against the New Testament and not against Mel Gibson? I'll be happy to answer that. I'll be happy to answer that one. <laughs> um, the, when I went to see the movie, uh, as I said, it was, I went to Willow Creek Church, a fabulous church in, uh, in Chicago, one of these mega churches with a great ministry, and sitting there with these ministers being told, I didn't say it, being told this is the gospel. What you are seeing is what happened, and be handed a booklet, a packet, on how to proselytize and market the movie as the true version, the best marketing opportunity for the church in 2,000 years. It was presented that way. So clearly those presenting the movie, those marketing the movie, those asking us to see it and be moved by it, understood this to be the gospel and truth. For those of us who are concerned about the movie, I walked into that movie hoping that I would be deeply moved. I am moved by religious stories, not only mine, I'm moved by powerful religious stories of other communities. My disappointment wasn't against the gospels. My disappointment wasn't against Christian tradition. My disappointment was that that movie was set to polarize, to separate us. And in a sense, the ways that you speak reflect exactly that polarization. Us against them. They're attacking us. They're undermining us. They're out to destroy us. Those are the concerns that I would have with the movie. Not its anti-Semitism, but the degree to which at a time in this country where there's great concern over fundamentalism, because we've been the recipients of fundamentalist attacks, when there are great concerns, the last thing we can afford is to heighten these types of polarizations and conflict. And that was the real concern and remains a concern. Not about the Christianity, not about the Christian priests and ministers and theologians with whom I am in contact every single day who also were attacked by people who saw this movie as the truth. My problem isn't with Christianity. My problem is when anybody elevates an artistic form to the gospel, to the absolute truth. And that's how it was presented. And that's why it got the response.
<laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Mm. I'm going to repeat the question, actually, just to be sure everyone heard, heard it. For those who saw the movie, to what do, how do they view the devil in the movie, and how is the devil uh, a culprit? Shall I take this one? Yeah. Uh, the devil is played by an actress uh, named Rosalinda, Rosalina Celentano. Um, it's interesting that the devil is played by a woman. Uh, this is one of the respects in which the movie is actually drawing on a film you wouldn't expect Gibson to draw on, namely Scorsese's Last Temptation, where you also have an androgynous female playing the devil. One of the interesting things um, is in this movie, the devil and the Madonna become twins, in effect, who circle around Jesus throughout all the scenes of suffering. One imagines them on opposite sides. Um, he uses motifs from the horror film genre in representing the devil, including a, uh, a very strange use of a ghoulish figure that she's holding in her arms as a babe. Um, now, none of this devil stuff is in the Gospels. Um, and I think one of the most interesting ways for people to begin to get into the movie is to just ask themselves in the most serious way they can, at which points is he drawing on the Gospels, and at which points is he not? Okay. He seems to have a stake in representing this as the, this is just the way things actually happened. And he repeatedly says in the interviews that he spent 12 years studying to make sure that he was representing things correctly. Now, I have no worry uh, about I think he ought to be free to express his own view of what he thinks is true. But truthfulness involves trying hard to make sure that your own views are true, as well as saying what you think is true. And let's start with this issue of Latin and Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke, we think. Um, is there any evidence that the that the Romans in Palestine would have been speaking Latin when communicating with the, with, the, uh, with the people they were oppressing? No, the historians tell us that it would have been Greek that they would have been speaking. So there's something phony about this business of representing the, the characters here as speaking in these, in these languages that they would have spoken. And there's no real indication that Mel Gibson spent a lot of time trying to figure all of this out. Let's see. Uh, first back there. Uh, yeah, actually, all the way to the back. Sorry. 
The question is, uh, where does the movie, if it does so, cross the line um, into sadomasochism? Who, who would you like to address that question? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're asking who feels qualified for what one man's sadomasochism is another man's joy. I mean, I can't, I can't answer that. Look, l let me, just to clarify again, I'm not a Christian. I wanted to be moved by the movie. This presentation of Jesus without, without ministry, without resurrection, could not speak to me. So for me, it was two hours minus about 15 minutes of watching someone being murdered. I normally would not do that, right? And so for me, I experienced moment. I have no question that it would be possible, you know, for someone, an innocent, you know, 22-year-old young woman who would never go to a violent movie to see this movie and not see that at all, but see it in the most beautiful, powerful, moving ways. There I think, there I really think it's kind of an unfair, uh, an unfair assault I do not, I, it would be hard for me to imagine, even though I do understand the Braveheart history of Mel Gibson, you know, this is how he felt it needed to be presented to a world which is used to seeing graphic violence all the time. If Jesus' pain is so much more than the pain of the rest of us, how can you portray that if not by upping the level of graphic violence? I understand it artistically, I suppose. It doesn't work for me. It's going to work for somebody else. I don't think that's a criterion in which we really can do a lot of judging. Yes. Just, just a question, please. I, th I think the question, I'm not sure I understand the question. I think the question is um, if, um, if, if this, if this uh, movie is only depicting a particular uh, group of Jewish people as involved in the death of Jesus, why is it that the, the movie is, um, is, is being attacked as being anti-Semitic more generally? I mean, look, oh, sorry, I'll, I, I can just quick. I did have somebody stand up and say, I don't understand this. I love Jews. Why don't you just admit you killed Christ and let's get on with it? In a sense, that's what you're asking. Look, it doesn't need to go that way, right? It doesn't need to work out in that way. Tell the story you the way you choose to tell it and make sure in the way that you tell it, it's not going to cost someone else. It's not going to damage someone else. I don't, I have no, it's not my, it doesn't worry me. If you say the Jews killed Jesus, it doesn't worry me, as long as you're not going to kill me as a result of that. I do want to add, though, something you did here, and it's important to note. 
Jewish response or Christian response concerned about anti-Semitism is not causing greater anti-Semitism in the Catholic Church or anyplace else. Leave the two things divided. Anti-Semitism doesn't need the movie. Anti-Semitism is not dependent on what Jews do. It's not dependent on what anybody else does. It lives in its own world, right? So move it out from the this conversation that's taking place. We can disagree vehemently. None of us are going to walk out more anti-Semitic or less as a result of that. Far better to look at the look at two other questions that are far more important, which you heard a piece of here. What does this mean for Christians to have your story told in this way? What does it mean to Christians? And what does it say about humanity in this movie? And that's a good basis to discuss it. Let go of the anti-Jewish stuff. It really isn't germane and isn't an issue of concern, at least for Jews like me. One more question back there. Yes. If you could stand, please. You're earning your pay. Actually, that's not only a question to me. You really could ask it across the board because all of us could answer that same. The question was, given that it's the story of, of, of the passion, the death of Jesus, don't you need the polarization? Isn't that a necessary element? If you are the United States justifying invading Iraq, don't you need the polarization? If you are Muslims who are going to turn themselves into living bombs, don't you need polarization? If you're Hindus who are going to burn Muslims on a train, don't you need polarization? Obviously, polarization is a vehicle and a mechanism used to mobilize us against them. I guess the rhetorical nature of my questions is no. You don't need to divide the world of us against them. Jesus could have died. And you heard, actually, the answer. Jesus died for my sin, not for everybody else. So you don't need all the Jews. You don't need all the Romans. You don't need all the others who are against me. You need to be able to give it a different take. And actually, I think you heard here a number of different responses that was able to communicate the power of the death of Jesus magnificently in ways that neither polarize, nor hurt, nor damage. And that's what we would be looking for, certainly someone like me in that story. I'm going to call a halt right now, but I want to say something myself, very briefly. And that is that I think one of the greatest challenges that faces us as a community, I speak principally of the Princeton University community here and our many friends and guests as well, one of the great challenges is to be able to articulate our deepest convictions and questions and to be able respectfully to share also our concerns and our fears with one another and to do so in fellowship. And I am very, very pleased that this has been an occasion in which that kind of uh, challenge has been met uh, quite well. And I would like to invite all of you to come to Murray Dodge Hall, which is just in front of the chapel on the left side, um, for further refreshment and uh, a chance to carry this conversation. But let us thank our panelists. You know, if you, if you talk about those Christians in the room, that really is so Protestant. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you thinking it, man? Why did you hear it? You did it. 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 You did it.
Tonight with his wife, he's a Protestant. He's notoriously anti-Catholic. You know what I'm saying?